Would you take your Bible with me and turn to uh, John chapter 2 this morning? John chapter 2. We're going to continue our time in John's Gospel and look at verses 18 through 22 this morning uh, in John 2. We had the the privilege in the first service of celebrating a baptism. uh, And uh, and so that's why the tank's out. It's not just out for decoration. Um, we actually we had a we had a, a baptism in the first service and uh, and that was a strengthening and emboldening time for for all of us and we're grateful for God's re- regenerative work in the life of in the life of men and women here at Buffalo City Church. So uh, we are looking this morning at John chapter two, beginning in verse eighteen. I'm just going to read these five verses: eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, and twenty-two. And we'll consider. Uh, what we see here this morning. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Last week we explored uh, the, the, the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover, when he arrived in verses 13 through 17, we see Jesus driving out uh, the money changers and those who are selling oxen, sheep, pigeons. Um, he drives them out with a whip of cords, and he and he throws the money on the table or on the floor, and he flips the tables over, and we see this dramatic scene unfold in these uh, in these several verses leading up to this conversation that's had in verses eighteen through twenty-two. And in our time last week, we we uh, we developed the understanding that God cares, and that through Jesus, God ensures. Because he deeply cares about the purity of his dwelling place. The the people of God set apart for God's purposes. And when we see here that through Jesus God ensures the purity of his dwelling place, that ultimately points us forward to the cross. And ultimately points us forward to uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's through Jesus' sacrifice, it's through the sacrifice of Christ, that God makes holy or sets apart a people for his purposes. And then we see as we move through the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given to the church. God pours out the Holy Spirit on his church. And so God then does not dwell in temples made by man or with human hands, but rather he dwells in the people of God who are set apart for his purposes. This is the definition of the local church. It's what it means to be part of the church, is to be set apart through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the purposes of of God. And so by cleansing the temple in verses 13 through 17, Jesus points forward, uh, he points forward to the reason why he took on flesh, to cleanse us of our sin, and to make us holy, to set us apart, to make us right with God, so that we might represent him as ambassadors on earth. I want to emphasize the so that, because there's 
an important component there that we often lose as 21st century Christians. There is a, Jesus died in order to forgive my sins. There is that component, but then there is a so that or a why to that question. God didn't just do that because he thought it would be fun. There's actually a reason and a purpose that we are set apart for when uh, we, uh, when we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our, our sins and repent of that sin and turn from it. So, and Jesus points out that reason here in, in our text. Like I mentioned, 21st century Christians, sometimes we think a lot about uh, our status as a child of God. We say, oh, I'm God's child. And you may actually say that with some consistency. I'm God's child. I've been set apart in God's family. I've been made part of the family of God through Jesus Christ. But where we often err is we think that that's exclusively personal. We say, well, that's just a personal thing. It's between me and God. But the reality is, often when we refine just receiving the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal, that's great. Like, that's wonderful. Don't hear me downplaying that. But the question, why did God save you, is one that we don't actually often ask. Why did God set us apart? Why did he set you apart? If you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and repented of that sin and are seeking to follow, why did he set you apart? Why did God save you? When you're welcomed into God's family, you're welcomed into just that. You're welcomed into a, a family. And that's in, there's actually, it's important to note what a family is. It's not just a convenient metaphor for understanding. The metaphor actually extends beyond just child, daughter, son, that type of language. When you're welcomed into God's family, um, you're welcomed into a family that has values. It has goals. It's just like any earthly family that, that, we, that we would note. The goal of being a part of God's family is to be his representatives here on earth. So think about this. My, my kids pick up my mannerisms and my attitude for better or for worse, probably more worse than better. Hopefully, maybe not. Okay, yep. So the, the reality though is that they pick those things up in their father, right? They look at me, they see how I act, they see how I talk, they see the way that I construct and live my life and they pick up on those thing. They love to know me because I'm their dad, and so they ask questions. They say, Dad, what's your favorite color? They say, Dad, how tall are you? Dad, what's your favorite book? And they ask me questions about who I am. And then again, what they wind up doing is relaying that information to their friends, right? So my dad's 5'9". Okay, that's pretty average. That's nothing to be proud of. But he's, he's 5'9". How tall is your dad? Right? My dad can beat up your dad type of conversation, but I'm not threatening anyone. They say, My favorite color is red, but my dad's favorite color is green. And so when they naturally ask these questions, I answer them because I love them and because I want them to know more about me and I want to know more about them. There's this natural, natural knowing that occurs in our relationship. But my kids also represent me and represent the Drehosh house. Not a pressure-filled, like, you represent me sort of way, but in this sort of way that's like, our household is a 
I hope that our household will be a grace-filled yet disciplined household where, where we pursue the things of God together and represent those to the world around us. I would hope that, that the way we construct our home, Rebecca and I, would be reflected in our children. That's my desire. And this is the intersection here. If, if you're in Christ, God saved you. He set you apart, made you part of his family so that you would show others what it looks like to be part of his family. God saved you, made you a part of his family, so that you would show others what it looks like to be part of his family. You identify with your earthly family because you bear some sort of resemblance to your parents or your siblings, or because you share the same last name, or or because uh, you have a shared set of values. But even more than that, you should identify with your spiritual family as a child of God in the way that you reflect who God the Father is to the world around you. So in our text this morning, this group of people that questions Jesus, they're just called the Jews here, but these are high up in, uh, these people have some authority. Uh, The Jews here ask the question after, or ask Jesus a question after he cleanses the temple. The question is simply, what sign do you show us for doing these things? We'll unpack that in a moment. But these are people who think they believe to God, or belong to God's family. They believe that they belong to God's family because they descended from Abraham. But Jesus is going to quickly highlight here and continue to highlight through John's gospel that He's going to highlight that these people don't actually value what God the Father values. That they have a completely different set of values. And Jesus comes to to correct that. Jesus challenges them in this passage. But he does it in such a way uh, that's a little veiled. It's not as explicit as uh, it will get later in John's Gospel. And even the disciples don't quite pick up on what Jesus is saying here. They're not, they're not quite in tune with it yet, and uh, it takes until his, his, uh, his death and resurrection until they remember what he had said and, and understand fully what he meant. Jesus here goes after the temple. Again, he did so physically. Last week we explored that he did so physically by flipping the temples and dumping things, or flipping the tables and dumping things on the floor. And by going after the temple, he's going after the centerpiece of Jewish life. He's going to make a temple prediction here, but not in the way that the people think. Because he's going to be talking about himself. He's going to be talking about his body. And what effectively Jesus does here is he repositions the center of Jewish life off of the temple, that building constructed by men and human hands, he can repositions the center of it off of that building and onto himself. That's what he's doing here in this passage. The dwelling place of God was no longer the temple because, because God himself had come to dwell among his people. Jesus came to earth. He left his heavenly home. Jesus is God. God came to live among his people. 
And that gives the thrust or the principle that stands behind these verses. And when I said that Jesus repositions the center of Jewish life off of the temple and onto himself, the underlying principle or the thrust that even goes behind that is that Jesus stands at the center of everything. Jesus stands at the center of everything. And that's what he tells the Jews who question him. That he is what they're looking for. So let's take a closer look at some of these verses because the way that this develops is important. And I want you to note a few things. The first thing I want you to note here in this text is that seeking signs leaves the seeker unsatisfied. Seeking signs leaves the seeker unsatisfied. Again, literally the question they ask is, what sign do you show us for doing these things? For, again, these things here is flipping the tables, dumping the money on the floor, uh, driving people out with a whip. What, what, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And the question that they ask actually shows us that they think there might be a legitimate reason, right? Like, it's like, um, because they're not just like, get, get out of here, man. Like, there, you have no right. That's not what they say. How dare you? They don't say that. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So they think um, there's something going on here that, uh, that means that this guy might actually have a legitimate reason for cleansing the temple in the way that he did. I'm going to use that language, but you know what I mean. Um, they're thinking to themselves that if Jesus shows us a sign, then we will believe that what he did was legitimate or that he has the authority to do that. They, they think to themselves, uh, maybe this is a prophet. And if he's a prophet, then we should listen to him. Because nobody before Jesus, oh, this activity was going on for likely years. Nobody before Jesus had shown this type of initiative or taken this type of authority in the situation that was developing in the temple. Who is this guy? But what Jesus does is he answers the question in a way that doesn't satisfy them. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Then he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Well, that kind of feels like a non-answer. But he's driving them towards an understanding. Jesus answers in a way that doesn't satisfy them. Jesus already did a sign. We explored this several weeks ago in the wedding at Cana in Galilee. He turned the water into wine there, right? And he, he ushered in the messianic age. Jesus had come, and he was the Messiah. But that event was probably unknown to these people. But more importantly, more importantly here, though, we see a theme, another theme that's going to develop for us and that we need to be aware of as we walk through John's gospel. That no matter how explicit... And Jesus' signs are going to get really explicit throughout, his, his, uh, his, uh, uh, throughout John's uh, gospel. His signs are going to get really explicit. No matter how dramatic they get, there are people who just flat out refuse to believe. They're just like, no way. Not, not it. When we get to chapter 9 in John's gospel, Jesus heals a man born blind. And we're told that the Jews, presumably this a same group or composed of a similar grouping of people who question Jesus here when he cleanses the temple, ask just question this man relentlessly about what has happened. 
They just question him over and over. And then when they don't get an answer that they want, they go to his parents. And they start asking his parents what's going on. And they don't get an answer there either. Or an answer at least that satisfies them. And then they come back to the man again and question him a second time. And I love what he says. This is his response. He says, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And this like sends them into a frenzy, right? They're just, they're, that's the most obnoxious answer in their minds. Just a couple pages later in your Bible, in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And this, is, this sign is known by everyone. everyone. Everyone knows that Jesus brought a guy back from the grave in Lazarus. And then just one chapter later in chapter 12, we're told that, that, he, that the, these people, the chief priests, were trying to kill Lazarus. They, they actually plotted, they made a plan to kill Lazarus. No, nothing that Jesus did would satisfy them. Nothing that he did would cause them to believe. No matter what sign the Jews saw, they were never satisfied. Jesus knew this, and he didn't give them a sign in the way that they wanted. But he gives them something something altogether. We're going to explore that in a second. But before we move on from this thought, I think we want to ask ourselves, ourselves, you and me, we need to ask ourselves if our Christianity is marked by seeking signs. And maybe it's not as pronounced as, as, as something like these guys were asking for. Maybe it's not something earth-shattering, but maybe you're here this morning and you're seeking signs because your Christianity is marked by ifs and whens. Here's what I mean by that. God, I'll start living more for you if. I'll spend time in Scripture as an individual or with others when. I'll show love for my neighbor if. If they clean up their yard and mow their lawn. Right? I'll, I'll start getting invested in a local church when. And you've, what you're effectively doing here is uh, what the Jews are doing. You're creating this condition. Jesus, I will believe that you had the right to cleanse the temple. That you had the right to drive these people out. If you show me a sign. They say, we'll agree that what you did was valid if or when you show us a sign. And Jesus does that throughout the Gospels, and it's never good enough. It never, it never works out. They're, they're never convinced. We'll say, God, I'll spend time in Scripture with others if I have time or when my overcome my social anxiety or if there's nothing good on TV or when my kids are older. Or we say, I'll I'll invest in a local church when they provide the things that I want to do or when it doesn't conflict with my schedule or when I feel like it or when this difficult season of life ends. But here's the deal with all of that. When we're adding ifs and whens onto commands that Jesus gives us in Scripture, what we're doing is Just making the statement, Jesus isn't at the center of my life. Something else is. Christians, we should, again, as those who have been set apart and been brought into God's family, we should rejoice to reflect 
our Heavenly Father to the world around us. We should rejoice and we should realize that displaying who God is to the world is our greatest aim. How many of us in this room, myself included, could say this week that reflecting God to the world around me was my greatest aim? At every moment. I can't do it. I can't say it. I would love to say it. Jesus is the only way we can reflect our Heavenly Father. We need to depend on Him fully for this. Through the good news that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and that those sins will be forgiven if we repent and turn, trust Jesus is the only way to have our sin paid for. Through that good news, we're freed and awakened to the reality that Jesus stands at the center of all things. You need that reminder this week. We'll get to that in a moment. Our world preaches a gospel of what we call secular humanism. And what that message tells you is that you are the center of the universe. That I am the center of the universe. And that I should be, everything around me should cater to me. And it should be the way that I want it all of the time. This is literally how you're marketed to every day. You should get what you want when you want it. That is a secular humanistic message. That is not the message of the Bible. And anyone who tries to blend that message with the message of the Bible is a heretic. The message of Christianity says Jesus stands at the center. When someone claims to be a Christian, but the commands of Christ and the things that God communicates that should mark the individual who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, when those, things are, when those things are amended with ifs and whens, we're just demanding that God arrange circumstances for us in a way that would make following them easy and on our timetable. God, make things easier for me so I can do your will. God, I know your word has told me how to live, but show me a sign so I can be sure. This is not the way God works. And it's on full display here in Jesus' response. If we're only willing to follow Jesus when the timing is right, or when our feelings are calibrated correctly, or our life is ordered the way that we like it, we're not following Jesus at all. We're demanding that he follow us. But Jesus isn't our on-call genie who offers us infinite wishes like the Jews would have liked to made him here. And we see that in his response. And this is the second point. Jesus proclaimed Christ crucified. Jesus proclaims the Christ crucified. Now he is the Christ, so that might seem a little weird to say, but Mark read it earlier in the service. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, For the Jews demand signs, literally what happens here. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Jesus' response to the demand for a sign is to preach himself, to proclaim himself the Christ crucified. The Jews thought they were that Jesus was talking about the temple, like that building. They're like, 
Man, that took 46 years to build. Are you going to bring it back in three days? But he's not talking about construction timelines. And because they couldn't get their heads around this, it becomes a stumbling block immediately. He's like, I can't, I can't get over the fact that there's a metaphor embedded here. But Jesus had moved on from the temple physically and had begun talking spiritually. I mean, his resurrection was physical, but he was getting at a spiritual reality. Jesus had moved on. A sign was coming. Jesus would be crucified and he would be buried. But then he would walk out of the grave three days later. And so Jesus uses the temple imagery to describe events, to describe events that would take place. Jesus, Jesus' response would put on full display that it was not, that it was not uh, the temple that stood at the center of the life of the people of God, but rather he himself that stood at the center of all things. Jesus came into the world to buy back his people from sin with his own blood, but for a, for a purpose, so that in order that in him they would reflect their creator, that they would display the values of the family of God, that they would show what, who God is to the world around them, not just so they could say, hey, you know what? I'm good. Fire insurance. This could only happen through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the only way that men and women are brought back into right standing in God's family. And they're given the ability to reflect their heavenly father to the world around them. Jesus met the demands of the Jews for a sign by proclaiming the event that would firmly fix him at the center of all things. Let me say that again. Jesus met the demands of the Jews for a sign by preaching, by proclaiming the event, his death and resurrection, that would fix him firmly at the center of all things. So, conclusion. What, what's our response to this? How do we respond to the fact that Jesus stands at the center of all things, and that he declares that to be the case here in these verses. Verse 22 is all we need to to understand how we should live in light of this. Uh, The disciples, what's their response? Jesus was raised from the dead, and they remembered and they believed. Two simple things. They remembered and they believed. The Christian life is a continual cycle of remembering and believing. Uh, This morning, Dan's baptism, Dan Rotherham, his baptism reflected his belief that Jesus saved him from his sin. But we all who observed it here in the first service, uh, we also remembered what it was like to be separate, separated from God, and then to be set apart in the process, the death to self and self-interest, and the 
resurrection, the raising, to walk in newness of life with the new man, the new creation that we are now. And the commitment to live according to that reality, that truth. You need reminders. I need reminders. This week we need reminders. We need endless reminders that you are not at the center of all things. I am not at the center of all things. We need that. We've got to have it. We need to be reminded that Jesus is at the center of all things. And we need to believe it too because my initial inclination when I get in the car and I go home and something challenges the thought that I stand at the center of all things, my response is to be frustrated. I don't like that reality. I don't want that to be the case. I want things to cater to me and to cater to what I want, how I, I want the circumstances to, I, I like to plan, I'm concrete, sequential. Give me the order of events and let's hit them all. And when that's disrupted, and when I can no longer uh, control my environment, and what that proves to me that I'm not at the center of my life, and I hate it. <laughs> but I need to believe it. And not just believe it like cognitively, but believe it in the way that I live. And God is, God is so gracious and kind. Friends, he is so kind to you. I don't know what you're going through right now in this moment, but God is kind to you because he has given to you ways to remember and to believe. And we see these right here in verse 22. Just like the disciples remembered and believed through what Jesus said, the words he spoke about his death and resurrection. Remember, the words that he spoke, the things that he said, those are the things that, that we need to remember. And they didn't do this as individuals separated out in different places. John has the wherewithal and the understanding that these guys together remembered what it was like. And so two things. One, God gives us ways to remember and believe. He gives us his word. He gives us 66 books of him displaying who he is to us over and over and over again. Page upon page of a wealth of knowledge of the infinite God and creator of all things. He gives us that as a way to remember who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And then, and not only that, but he gives us each other. He gives us the church. He gives us the people of God who are set apart to reflect God's divine character to the world around and to one another. We, we have each other. And God orchestrated that. He didn't, he didn't just say, okay, over here now. You're over here. You're good. Now move on. He said, put you here amongst these people so that you would remember and so that you would believe. Through him, through Jesus, you've been welcomed into God's family and you've been freed to know the one who stands at the center of all things. And if you know the one who stands at the center of all things, then there is nothing. Friends, there is nothing that should dominate your thoughts apart from him. Should dominate your actions outside of how he has, how he has laid out how we should live. When we get together, we get to practically practice the ordinances, the things that 
Jesus commanded us to do as a group of people. Last week we took the Lord's Supper. This morning in the first service we had baptism. Those are practical pictures of the gospel played out in our lives and in our midst. These are the primary ways that God provides us to remember to believe. His word and the church, non-negotiables for every Christian. But friends, you're, you're also being constantly reminded and, and, and prompted to believe that Jesus is the Christ and stands at the center of all things all of the time. There are countless ways that today you will be reminded. You, your friends and your family and your creation go outside in the beautiful weather and look at the sky or look at the, look at the landscape and see his handiwork before him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the creator. He made everything and everything belongs to him. You'll see that and you will be provoked to remember and to believe. Even your suffering, the things that are hard right now, the trials, the tribulations, the, the hardship, even those things are designed to remind you that Jesus stands at the center of everything. So this week, two things. Resolve two things. First, to remember and believe that Jesus stands at the center of all things because that's going to firmly dictate how you're weak, uh, how you live this week. And secondly, fix yourself firmly, simple, fix yourself firmly in God's word and the local church because you will find, friends, you will find that it is impossible to remember and believe separated from people, separated from God's word. You can't do it. You can't live in isolation from God's people. You can't live in isolation from God's word and expect to know the one true and living God. It was the words of Jesus that the disciples remembered together that led to their belief that Jesus is at the center. So, friends, may we continue to be a church that is continually reminding one another to remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and believe that Jesus suffered, bled, and died and rose again in order that we might be forgiven, in order that we might be set apart to reflect our Heavenly Father to the world around us. Let's pray.